Well, I think it's funny that on the first day of a series on marriage, 30 of our women are away at a, at a retreat in the Poconos, and they're the ones who are like, when are you going to preach on marriage? My husband really needs to hear it. Well, men, this is your time. So when, she, when they get home, you would say, oh, honey, we heard a message on, on marriage this morning. You should listen, and you're just going to get so many points because she's going to say, you really care about our relationship? I'm so... I'm sorry about the voice, it's how I do women, it's what comes out, sorry about that. So today we are starting a three-part series on marriage, and I'm very excited about that. I thought to start we should look at some quotes, so we're going to begin by looking at quotes of a couple of musicians. The composer Franz Schubert said, happy is the man who finds a true friend, and far happier is he who finds that true friend in his wife. What's so sad about that is he was never married. Poor Schubert was never married. Miles Davis, if you love him in the morning with their eyes full of a crust, if you love him at night with their hair full of rollers, chances are you're in love. That pretty good, pretty good advice. Well, now, as musicians, let's look at a few philosophers here. Socrates said, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you will be happy. And if you get a bad one, you will be a philosopher. I wonder if his wife knew he said that. <laughs> you know, he committed suicide, right? Um, what counts in making a happy marriage is not so much how compatible you are, but how you deal with incompatibility. That's really good, Leo Tolstoy. Irma Bombeck, anybody remember Irma Bombeck? Yeah, marriage has no guarantees. If that's what you're looking for, go live with a car battery. And some of you women are saying, I already live with a car battery. Right, all right. A happy marriage is a long conversation which always seems too short. That's really sweet, and I have to remember that when my wife and I are in the middle of an argument and I'm thinking, do we have to keep talking about this? Ah, too short. Dr. Seuss, famous philosopher. You know you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. That's really sweet. All right, and then finally, uh, we have a couple of doctors. Joseph Barth, marriage is our last and best chance to grow up. Hmm, yeah, some of us need to do that. Dr. Joyce Brothers, a name from the past. Marriage is not just spiritual communion, it is also remembering to take out the trash. That's true. That's true. Uh, so marriage, we are starting our series on marriage and I am excited about that. I found that as I was preparing today the message on the biblical foundation of marriage, I kept defaulting to come at it from a, a, uh, an apologetics viewpoint, from a, a viewpoint of defending marriage biblically in our culture. And I kept going that direction because of where our culture is today. Uh, our culture has distorted marriage and has eroded the biblical foundation of marriage, and not just from, from the grassroots on up, but from the top down. Our government has already redefined marriage and keeps pushing the boundaries. And so as I prepared, I kept becoming defensive about this, but today I really don't want to do that. Today what I really want to do is, is talk to the people here who are married and those who desire to be married and give you a glimpse just a glimpse of how God views marriage. 
And I think that you'll find that it'll, it will be life-changing for you because, because God sees marriage in a very special way. Now, I know that we are horrified by what's happening in our culture about marriage, and I want you to know that today, the fact that I'm not going to a more apologetics approach to this does not mean that I'm saying we should not stand up about that. We do need to stand up. The church is the voice of morality to our government. When our government is not speaking moral truth, the church needs to inform the government. You and I need to be very active in these things. These are not political things, these are moral things. And you and I get to speak into that and I wanna encourage us to do that. One way that we can do that, and I would like you to mark your calendars, on October 15th, we are going to have a very special call to pray. That's a Sunday night at six o'clock. At that call to pray, we have invited Delaware Family Policy Council to come in and they are going to go over several of the upcoming bills that are designed to erode family, to erode marriage, and we are going to pray, get, get informed about them, and then pray specifically about each one. If we want to speak into our government, the first thing we need to do is be praying. And so I want to encourage you to come out to that. So that was my commercial. But I want you to know that that marriage has been defiled and tarnished since the very beginning of time. God created marriage in Genesis, but also in the book of Genesis, we have had premarital sex, we have homosexuality, we have polygamy, rape, incest. What we experience today is nothing new. It is not new, it's been around since the beginning. And so today we're going to look at the biblical foundation of marriage as it is formed on three scriptural pillars. The first pillar comes from Genesis 1, and it's uh, from verses 26 and 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So the first teaching that we get in scripture is that God created two genders, male and female, and the two genders come together to portray the image of God. Now it's hard to understand what God's image means. We serve a God who is Trinitarian. He is a Trinity. Now that means that he is three persons in one being. And maybe the best way I can explain this to you is that, that I am one being, I'm a human being. I'm one being. And my being is expressed in the personhood of John Rossetti. So I am one being that contains one person, that expressed, that being expre is expressed through one person. God is one being that is expressed through three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those three persons exist together as one being, they are indivisible, and yet they are completely individual in their personality. And so because of that, we say that God is, is himself in fellowship with himself. God communes with himself. God is in relation. His very image is relationship to himself. So when he creates man in his own image, he is creating us with the capacity for that relationship. 
the capacity to be brought together as one being with more than one person in that being. God creates humans in his image. We are created for relationship. We have the capacity for that relationship. And as a result of that relationship, we show the very image of God and his relational aspect and attributes. So let's jump to Genesis chapter two. Then God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So it is not good. Up until this point in creation, everything in creation has been good or very good. And suddenly God declares, there's something not good in this creation. That man that I created, Adam, who I created in my image, who bears the complete image of God, is alone and it is not good, and I will make a helper suitable for him. Now watch what happens next, this is great. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So you see what God did here? He said, Adam, you're lonely. It's not good. I'm going to take care of the problem. Before I do that, though, let's just review everything I've created. And so Adam catalogs all of the living creatures. And it's as if to say, Adam, did you find anything? Anything that you've looked for, are you able to solve your problem? Oh, oh, you can't. You can't solve your problem yourself. See, Adam, only I can do that. Only I can bring in a helper suitable for you. And that word, helper suitable, is, is a beautiful word. The word helper is the same word that's used when it says that God is our helper. Okay, so this is not just a, a, you know, a, a tag along, a little elf that kind of helps us when we need a little, little charge, right? No, this is an essential helper. And suitable means perfectly matched. One, going to be one being, and God is going to do that. So God does it. God says, only I can do that. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, that's the word there is really sighed, and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now I want you to notice one thing about this this verse. There are four main phrases in it, and God is the subject of each of those phrases. The Lord God caused the man to sleep. He removed the side from the man. He fashioned a woman out of that side, and he brought the woman to the man. God did it all. Did man have any part in this? Not at all. Only God could address man's need. And he did it by creating his, his, his uh, culminating creation, woman. As if to say, this woman is the solution to your problems. Now, men, I want you to look at your wives and say, you solve all of my problems. Ah, that's not going to happen, is it? No, 
No, it's not. And it reminds me of the card I read. I was looking at cards one time and I read a card and it said, it said menopause, menstruation, mental illness, and you open it up and it said, why is it that all of women's problems start with men? Ah. Well, anyway, here's what the man says when he sees the woman. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, when Adam says that, he's saying, she's beautiful. I like when I meet with, with premarital couples, I, I say, it's Adam saying, she's a hot tamale. She's beautiful. She's like me, but she's not like me, and that difference is so amazing, and she's from my being, and yet she's not me. She's a part of my being, but she's different. It's a beautiful, beautiful exclamation of what Adam is seeing here. And then he says that, that they were, the two will become one. See, relationship and communion are essential to who we are. And when he says that they will be one flesh, he's talking about the complete unity, just as God is one being and cannot be separated. A man and a woman come together, and they are not supposed to be separated. They're supposed to be one being, actually one being. So now, if we bear the image of God and he created the male and female, and together, male and female bears the image of God, then marriage is much more than just a relationship between two people. It's a testimony to who God is. You see, it becomes, it becomes the broadcast of the image of God. So just as God was one being and three persons, marriage is one being and three persons, husband and wife and God. We reflect the very Trinitarian aspect of our God in marriage. We are inseparable because God has put us together as one being. So God as three in one marriage is the same. The, when the two become one flesh, it means we are becoming one being. And then not only is, is that true, but it's so powerful because when the two come, become together physically, what happens? Well, babies come from that. This, the, the two becoming one flesh literally results in creation. So it not only shows the, God's Trinitarian attributes, but it shows God's creative power that when the two become one, when they are in relationship with each other, they create life. When those, when those two come together, it creates life. That's exactly what God does. And so our marriages is so much bigger than just us. It's showing who God is, his character, and his creative nature. So to review our first pillar, man had a need. He was emotionally, spiritually, physically alone. God fixed that need by making something amazing, a woman. And he brings them together. God says he, he brought the woman to Adam and 
she became his wife. God performed the first marriage for a permanent relationship. And physical intimacy in that marriage is good and right. It was designed by God to meet the needs of the people in that marriage and to reveal the image and glory of the creator. The specific combination of one man and one woman as God created them shows the very character of who God is. Now this should keep us straight on related issues. So within this, you know, a lot of times um, uh, churches that call themselves uh, gay-affirming churches or, or gay-affirming Christians, they go to the biblical passage that's, passages that speak against homosexuality and they, they, um, they water them down. They say, well, it's not really speaking about that. It's speaking about group intimacy or about rape. But we don't even have to look at those passages. We can just look at the foundation of how God created mankind, humankind, and say that was his design. And any, any variation from his design is not what he wants. So homosexuality is not accepted in the institution of marriage. Polygamy is not. It was made for humans. It was not made for animals. It was not made for inanimate objects. It is intended for, for it to be purpose. And then the act of intimacy is the way that the marriage is described and demonstrates God's creative power. So there's no room in, in that as well for adultery or for sex outside of marriage. God designed marriage and defined marriage and he gave it its parameters. And it's arrogant and it's presumptuous for any government or any person to think they have more wisdom than God to redefine that. The second pillar of marriage comes from Jesus in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. We'll start reading in, actually, it's verse three here. Uh, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So let me give you the context here. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. Jesus had previously said, everyone who divorces his wife, except for cause of adultery, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever divorces a divor- or marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now the Pharisees, though they were conservative religiously, as far as marriage goes, they were very liberal. And they believed that Moses taught that uh, a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. In fact, um, just some quotes from some rabbis of the time. Uh, A bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. What is the remedy? Let him divorce her and be cured of his leprosy. Another quote, if a man has a bad wife, it is a religious duty to divorce his wife. So they figure if we can get Jesus to speak out about divorce, he'll lose some popularity. Also, this event is taking place in Perea, which is where Herod was. Well, John the Baptist had not long ago been beheaded because he spoke against Herod's adulterous relationship. Ah, maybe if we can get Jesus to speak it, maybe he'll get beheaded too. Well, Jesus, as always, has a brilliant answer. And he takes the Pharisees right back to the passage that we just looked at in Genesis 2. Let's read it. He says, and he answered them, have you not read? And and I love that because it's like, have you not read? I mean, it's so clear in scripture. Why are you distorting what the scripture says? Have you not read it? And I think that about our society today. 
Like, have you not read this? This is obvious. It's obvious from the beginning that this is what God had intended. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? That's our quote from Genesis. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus added to the Old Testament this last phrase, what therefore God joined together, let no man separate. The permanency of marriage. He's saying, Pharisees, haven't you read marriage was God's design? It's not about Moses, what Moses had to say. God is the one who invented marriage. And marriage is intended to be for life, and it's his work. The work of divorce is man's work. So he emphasizes that it's God's work, and man should not separate them. So the disciples are concerned about what they heard in Jesus' question. You can imagine this, right? The disciples, most of them are single. They're all young. Uh, I think we, we believe only Peter was married at the time. And so they're hearing this and thinking, why should, why should we even marry? If it's that hard to get a divorce, why would we even want to marry? And listen to what the, what's, what's said here. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And so you can understand their concern. Wow, this is a really tough teaching, Jesus. And Jesus answered them in verse 11. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there were eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So let me just explain what he's talking about here. Jesus says, yes, marriage is a tough thing. It's a life commitment. And if you cannot accept it, the other option is you can be a eunuch. Now, so in this culture, there are those, a eunuch is somebody who does not have their reproductive organs. Some are born that way, is said. Some are made that way by their parents, and that would be, for instance, if I were a servant in a queen's court, okay? I would be made a eunuch so that I wouldn't be a threat to her, a threat to the, to the king. And then it says some would be celibate eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. The point about this is that Jesus doesn't give any other options. It's either you're married or you're celibate. See, they're asking the question about, when is it okay to change the, the marriage thing, to divorce? Jesus says, there's two options. There's marriage or there's celibacy. He doesn't say, well, if your marriage isn't going well, just find another woman. Better yet, find five women. Better yet, find a man. Or how about an animal? Or anything else? Or, well, you know what, don't get married at all. Just, just have marital union without being married. See, Jesus doesn't give any of those options. And again, you know, if we want a scriptural argument against premarital sex, this is it. There's no verse that says don't do this, right? Here, it's in, in the, the principles that Jesus is setting up. Two options. You're married or you're celibate. And I wish I had time today to talk to our singles, our faithful singles,
some of whom are waiting to be married, some have decided to not be married, who are practicing celibacy. And really, we should stand up and give them a round of applause because what a difficult thing it is to choose a godly life in that. Thank you for, to you singles who are doing that. Thank you for being faithful to the word, being true to God, and denying yourself for the sake of his word. What a, what a beautiful thing. Thank you for doing that. So we go to our third pillar. Our third pillar comes from the book of Ephesians. And let's read it here. You are familiar with this passage. Um, this is the passage that's on submission, wives submitting and husbands loving wives sacrificially. And I'm not really going to talk about that passage today. In two weeks, we will get into the nitty gritty of submission and sacrificial love. Please come back for that in two weeks. Uh, today, I wanna just read this passage to you and touch on a couple of things. Starts out, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then here's the quote from Genesis, always back to that foundational passage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. No, wait, what? Wait. Paul, what did you just say? I thought you were talking about marriage. He says, no, 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 no. I'm talking about Christ and the church. No, that whole passage was just about wives submitting and husbands loving sacrificially. That's all about marriage. And he says, no, no. Don't you get it? I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, here's the point. Our marriages not only show God's attributes and not only show his creative power, it also shows how Christ gave himself up for humankind, loved us so much that he would call us to himself. And our marriages are to show that love response of the church, obedience and submission. See, it's not only a picture of who God is, but it's about his love for us. Our marriages demonstrate Christ's love for humanity and the church's love response. It's a picture of what takes place between Jesus and you when you have received Jesus in your heart by faith, when you've committed to follow him and become a believer. He marries us. The Bible says in the book of Romans, it says that the true believer becomes one with Christ. 
You see, he comes into us. He has personal relationship with us. He has emotional relationship with us. And that relationship is permanent. Christ redeemed us so that we would be married to him. And as we are married to him, as that passage says, he purifies us. He forgives us. He makes us holy so that we can have more and more deeper relationship with him, more intimate. He saves us for that purpose. He wants intimate relationship with every single one of us. Why do you think there's not marriage in heaven? There's not marriage in heaven because we are the bride of Christ. We will be married to Christ Our relationship with him is all about marriage. So our marriages are all about our relationship with him and showing who he is. So you see, we have these three pillars. We have God who says, I designed and defined marriage as one man, one woman. And it reveals who I am and my my very attributes. Christ says, God designed marriage marriage as one man, one woman, and it's to be for life. And in doing that, it reveals who God is. And then the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says, God has designed marriage as one man and one woman, and it reveals who God is to the world, and it also demonstrates the love that he has for mankind. Brothers and sisters, your marriage is so much more than you. Your marriage is so much more than two people who came together because they love one another and are living together. Your marriage is so much more than your happiness or your spouse's happiness. Your marriage is so much more than, that, than the fact that you have established a new family. It is so much more than the sum of the two people who have come together. You see, your marriage is not about you after all. Your marriage, my marriage, is about God. The whole purpose for marriage was for God to reveal who he was to humankind. And you and I get to participate in that when we're married. That's the most beautiful thing about marriage. It is not about you. See, when the world looks at our marriages, it should say, wow, I see God. I see the creative aspects of God. I see how much God loved people. Oh, the question we have to ask, are our marriages in the condition that anybody would look at them and actually say that? That's why we need the Lord to help us with that. So what's the practical side of all this? The practical side of all this is that if the marriage is not really about you after all, if your marriage is really about God and who he is and how he loved us, then that should motivate motivate us to seek God more diligently in our marriages. It should motivate us to work on our marriages. You know, I can't tell you how many times I hear, he'll never change. There's that voice again. He'll never change or she'll never change. Wait a minute, wait. Do we have a God that changes mankind, that changes us? We do. We do. Of course we will change because we have a God who's all about change, all about making us like him. But the thing about this really is that that so many of us have stopped working on our marriages. You see, we just get into default mode. You know, 
husband comes home, wife comes home, we just do our marriage and we forget to actually work on it. But if marriage really is not about you and it's about God, oh, that should be a great motivation to keep us working hard. If the world's supposed to see our marriage and, and see God in it, oh, we better get to work, brothers and sisters. We better get to work on this. Knowing this should motivate us to get good biblical counseling. Men, get counseling. Women are smart. They want counseling. They look at, they look at the, the relationship and they go, oh, there's something missing. I'm trying not to do the voice. There's something missing. And, and we, we need to go to counseling. And the husband says, forget that. I'll fix it. Eh, nothing's broken after all anyway, right? Men, get counseling. You need it. You need it. Our marriages need to be centered on the Bible. Get good, strong, biblical counseling. Throughout our lives, at at various times, when Denise and I had trouble, or there were times where we just had questions, we went to different counselors. Sometimes it was to our pastor. Sometimes, one time I went and said, I need to talk to a pastor I never met before. I just need to talk to somebody who doesn't know me, doesn't know my wife. One time, many times, we've gone to, to professional counseling. It's good, it's healthy, we need it, we must do that. If this is true that our marriage is about God and not about us, we should be more motivated to be more interested in the growth of our marriage than we are about winning the fight. If it's true that our marriage is about God and who he is, then that should increase our desire to persevere through marriage. Every marriage has trouble. Every single marriage has trouble. Are you gonna make it through it? Well, if your marriage is about God, it gives you another reason. It gives you a much greater reason than, I'm just not happy, right? I'm not happy may be reason to leave for you, but your marriage isn't about that. Your marriage is about God. So it'll give you motivation to persevere and stick with it, even though it's difficult. It should motivate us to practice humility because it's not about me, it's about the thing that God has created, the us, the being that God has made out of our marriage. It will help us to be more committed to our spouses. It should move us to work toward the oneness that reflects God's character. And we should, we should be moved to love each other in a way that shows how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's what he did for every one of us here. Christ loved you, gave himself up for you, and is inviting you into a marriage relationship with you, with him. I'm going to ask for all of the people who are married, even if your spouse is in the Poconos or whatever, to to stand up. And if, if two spouses are here, Hold hands, okay, go ahead and do it. I'm not gonna ask you to look in each other's eyes, that would be weird for here anyway. Good, good. I just want to pray. Pray over our marriages here today. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we come to you and confess that, that so many times our eyes are just on ourselves. So many times we, we think that that I am the most important one here. Oh Lord, today you have revealed to us that the marriage that you have 
put each one of us in has a much greater purpose. And that purpose is to reveal who you are, the very image of God. To reveal the unfathomable love that you had that you would draw us, rebellious sinners, to yourself and bring us into relationship with you. Oh Lord, I pray for every marriage here. None of us is where we need to be. Lord, would you set us today, set us on a trajectory of revealing much greater who you are to those around us. Would you move in us to take steps that would build us into being one being with three members, husband, wife, and holy God. Lord, would you protect the marriages of this congregation so that others would look and see who you are, so that others would look and say, there must be a God who loves me. Oh Lord, help us. We are weak and we so need you. Lord, I know here there are marriages in, in all different conditions, marriages that are thriving, marriages that are, are on their last, last gasp. Oh Father, none of it, none of those are out of your reach. None of those are out of possibility of you coming in and making it right. Oh, I pray that each member of a married couple here would become fully submitted to you, would put down our pride, would put down our, our arrogance. Lord, that you would break our hearts so that we would begin to be able to work at what really matters in our marriage, that it reveals you to the world. Protect us, lead us, guide us, empower us by your spirit to do this, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now would everyone else please stand. Lord, help, help us as we go now, Lord, because we as a church want to speak truth boldly. Lord, we understand that there is no separation between truth and love and that when we speak truth about your morality, we are loving the people in our community. Give us courage, give us boldness, give us braveness, give us sensitivity. Oh Lord, help us to be an influencer in our community. May you make each one of us a mouthpiece for your spirit to speak the truth about biblical marriage, about sexuality. Would you use us to bring truth to our community and to our world? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening so well, for being here this morning, amen.